Thanks for joining me for this middle section of Mark chapter 6. And a little note for you before we dive in. Uh, I have not done this, I don't think, at all throughout my narrative approach to the book of Mark. But in this particular section, it'll be verses 14, 15, and 16. I'm actually placing them later in the narration because it makes a little bit more sort of literary logical sense. So just wanted you to be prepared in case you're looking at your Bible. So we'll be diving in uh, with the Mark 14 to 33 section a little bit further in. So here we go. For Herod himself had sent and arrested John and had him bound in prison, all on account of Herodias, wife of his brother Philip. He had married her, though John used to say to Herod, It is not right for you to possess your own brother's wife. And let us visit John in his prison cell on a random night. The colors of sunset are wafting in through the narrow rectangular hole at the upper edge of the western-facing wall. The east wall has a matching patch of that fading light, pink-orange. The shadow of the bars make it a three-part glow, high on the wall. John is sitting on the floor of his cell, with his back against the wall, watching those colors shift from orange just a few moments ago to this pink-orange color, then to black. This is all part of his new end-of-the-day ritual. He is satisfied with those colors, with the clothes of another day. He is satisfied with his life, with his calling, with its completion, with the knowledge that his cousin, his God, is at work now. He wonders what that man, Jesus, is doing right now. They had first met during a sunset, just like this one. Now let's fast forward to the same place months later. It is another orangish sunset in John's cell. He has been walking its inner circumference, praying, thinking. He hardly notices the colors of the sunsets anymore. At every circumference circuit, he steps over his uneaten lunch unconsciously. He has grown weary of the rank, dank air of his cell, of the doldrums days that pass unendingly on into others. The early resignation, the sense of personal attainment to a hard-won suffering, has been replaced by a gnawing feeling of he knows not what. John the Baptist had never felt this feeling before. In fact, John the Baptist had begun to cease to believe. Above him, he hears the gravel-crunching sound of footsteps. They draw quickly nearer to his high, barred porthole. John steps back to the eastern wall to see their faces. Two of his former disciples are crouched at the bars, peering down at him. One of them, Simeon, says, Well, we saw him. And, John blurts out. The other, Micah, replies in his characteristically slow, plodding way. Well, he told us to tell you a certain message that was to come from him. John sighs. All right, then, let's have it. Micah, 
with his strange ability to emphasize statements in such a way that they sound nothing like the original speaker's pronouncement, tries to relate the words exactly. Go back, he said, and report to John, which is what we're here to do right now, the things which you, meaning me and Simeon, have seen and heard. Here are the things we saw and heard, meaning what he wanted us to say to you. Here it is. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those with leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me, which is meaning him, I guess, concludes awkwardly Micah. John the Baptist has slumped to the floor against the eastern wall of his cell. He is crying tears of great joy and belief. Now, Herodias herself, bigamous wife of both Philip and Herod Antipas, was furious with John the Baptist for his words against her remarriage and wanted to have him executed, but she could not do it. For Herod had a deep respect for John, knowing that he was a just and holy man and protected him. He used to listen to him and be profoundly disturbed, and yet he enjoyed hearing him. Indeed, Herod was a strange man. Then a good opportunity came, good, I suppose, from the vantage of Herodias, For Herod gave a birthday party for his courtiers and army commanders and for the leading people in Galilee. Herodias' daughter came in and danced, exceedingly inappropriately from the viewpoint of the guests with any sort of conscience, but to the great delight of Herod and his other guests. The king said to the girl, thinking through this about as clearly as someone three skins full of wine will often do. Ask me anything you like, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her with that unbelievable magnanimity that comes with a thorough drunkenness. I will give you whatever you ask me, up to half of my kingdom. You see, Herod was not only strange, he was also stupid. And she went and spoke to her mother. What shall I ask for? And her mother said, The head of John the Baptist. The girl rushed back to the king's presence and made her request. I want you to give me this minute the head of John the Baptist on a dish, she said. Herod was aghast, but because of his oath and the presence of his guests, he did not like to refuse her. So he sent one of the palace guardsmen straight away to bring him John's head. And that man went off on that errand. And so, one last time, let's revisit John's cell. The sunset is long gone. John is lying on his left side, facing in the direction of the solid iron door that gives on to the main hallway. He has been dozing in this uncomfortable position for an hour or two. His hair and beard, always thick and long during the years of his wilderness living, are now unbelievably thick and long and matted and foul. His camel's hair cloak is threadbare. His leather belt was long ago nibbled through by prison rats, worthless for cinching. 
He awakens at the grating sound of the door hinge moving. Atop the threshold, he sees not his usual guard. The man who enters his cell is someone he has heard about, the one the other prisoners refer to simply, shudderingly, as the other one. John, son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, forerunner of the Messiah, chosen of God, he who all the people of Israel revered as the Baptist. John stands to his feet to meet the prison's executioner, aware that these are the last impressions of human life he will ever perceive. He takes a deep breath of the stagnant air of his cell, experiences the shift of the texture of his cloak against his shoulders, feels the smooth surface of the stones underneath his feet. He walks the few steps over toward the other one who crosses in. I greet you, he says to the man. Outside, commands the executioner. The pair of them walk out to the courtyard. And this man beheaded John in the prison, brought back his head on the dish, and gave it to the girl who handed it to her mother. And let's be there, back in the banquet hall in that moment. There is a perfect silence among the guests, the servants, the dancers, the musicians, the invited and uninvited noblemen, the mother, the king, and the half-naked girl. The silence makes the air of the hall feel heavy. Herodias' daughter has a foolish smile on her face. She stands with her back to the king's table, watching down the colonnade for the approach of the executioner and his men. Every once in a while she turns, catches her mother's eye, winks. Everyone feels the worthlessness of the playing out of this whole scene. A sensuous dance, a nearly incestuous proceeding front to back, has robbed the happiness from what had otherwise been a fairly delightful evening. The silence suddenly stiffens. Everyone, every man and woman from every class, from all over the country, is suddenly united in the moment that unfurls. The executioner's confident, baleful stride in, his men trailing him through the alternating shadows and torchlight of the columns, a silver platter held in the middle of their group, the pinpoint dripping of blood spotting the length of the flagstones. And when the disciples of John the Baptist heard what had happened, they came and took away the body and put it in a tomb. Now, back along the shoreline of the Galilee, the apostles were returning to Jesus from their sending out in the six pairs and reported to him every detail of what they had done and taught. Jesus himself had only just heard about John's death. The apostles found him heavy of heart, not entirely himself. Now come along to some quiet place by yourselves and rest for a little while, said Jesus, for there were people coming and going incessantly so that they had not even time for meals. So they went off in the boat to a quiet place by themselves, but a great many saw them go and recognized them, and people from all the towns hurried around the shore on foot to forestall them. 
the disciples and Jesus could see all these people from across the waters. They only disappeared when darkness stole over the Galilee. And all this, the works of the apostles, the teachings and signs and wonders of Jesus, the enormous traveling crowds came to the ears of King Herod. For Jesus' reputation was spreading and people were saying that John the Baptist had risen from the dead and that was why he was showing such miraculous powers. Others maintain that he was Elijah and others that he was one of the prophets of the old days come back again. But when Herod heard of all this, he said, It must be John whom I beheaded, risen from the dead. And you see, what haunts the Tetrarch is not the guilt of the execution. He is used to that regularized outcome or the image of the awkward scene with that silly girl. He still hopes to make her his mistress one day. Or the aftermath with the servants sponging the drops of blood from the colonnade. After all, life is a filthy, bloody sort of business. Even if one isn't the ruler of a temperamental, oft-scheming country full of scoundrels, zealots, etc. No, what has been bothering Herod is the final conversation he ever held with that man named John, known to the people of Israel as the baptizer. He had had John hauled up for another of their late-night chats. John stood before him, hungry, dirty, peering from those hollowed-out eyes, and yet he emanated not an ounce of fear or awe or anxiety. There is something terrible in holding a man upon fear of death when he fears not death. Even a near king is frightened by such a self-possession. It was the last thing John said that now haunts him. He was being led away back to his cell. Your Excellence, he said, glancing over his shoulder. Yes, go ahead. I give you permission to speak. Remember, this light that shines in the darkness is unquenchable, John said. You may snuff me out, but you'll never tame the wick. The Tetrarch scoffed. And what is that supposed to mean, my man? John replied, I believe you'll know soon enough. <laughs>